You're listening to On Human Rights, where we talk to experts around the world about the latest and most important issues on human rights and humanitarian law. We're broadcasting from the Raoul Wallenberg Institute of Human Rights and Humanitarian Law in Lund, Sweden. I'm Gabriel Stein. Sumudu Atapatu is the Director of Research Centers at the University of Wisconsin Law School in the United States. She teaches in the area of international environmental law and has a new book on human rights approaches to climate change. Sumudu, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I I thought we would start with a very simple softball question. If you could explain the connection between the environment and human rights. Sure. Um, uh, A lot of environmental issues have an impact on people, uh, which means that um, they can also um, infringe the rights that are protected under international law. So to give an example, um, climate change. Um, If you take climate change as an example, um, the predictions are that it will lead to water scarcity, food scarcity, and we already experience severe weather events, uh, which have um, a huge impact on people. Um, which also means that their right to um, health, right to water, right to food, right to a livelihood, uh, right not to be displaced. Um, And um, in some instances, in extreme cases, right to life itself um, can be infringed. So there's a clear link between human rights and environmental issues. Although... um, it has not the link has not been looked at as a rights issue um, until quite recently. How recently? Five, ten years, or um, the link between human rights and the environment is yeah about ten, fifteen years old. But the link between climate change and human rights um, is very new. Um, the report on the High Commission for Human Rights came out in two thousand nine. It's not very clear what the obligations of states are because it's a global environmental problem, um, and the origin of the uh, the problem could be somewhere else uh, or the source. Um, so, um, human rights law is based on a vertical relationship between the state and the people, and it's territorially grounded mainly. So that means. But the source has to be within your territory or subject to the control of the state in order for the state to have an obligation to do something about it. So when climate change, uh, the source cannot be identified in many instances or it's a cumulative impact of many states that give rise to the, um, to the consequences, the situation becomes more complicated. What's happening in that field? It sounds like there's a very big gap then. How would you even go about closing that gap? Um, There is certainly a gap, but if you look at it in terms of mitigation and adaptation, um, the situation becomes a little clearer um, because um, 
under international environmental law, states have undertaken obligations to mitigate, take steps to mitigate climate change. So they have, um, under the recent Paris Agreement, um, states have um, um, deposited voluntary commitments to reduce their uh, greenhouse gas emissions. So that goes to mitigation. Um, so in order to give effect to those commitments, states have to do certain things at the national level. So, for example, if they want to um, move from coal power to, say, wind power, um, where do they locate those uh, wind energy, um, whatever those are called, farms or whatever, um, I mean, if they locate them in indigenous land, that might lead to a violation of human rights. Um, so there are lots of issues that are uh, that come up when you try to apply a human rights framework um, to these mitigation options. Um, another um, example is uh, biofuels. If you opt for biofuels, uh, you might have to convert agricultural land into uh, crops to crops for biofuels. That could have an impact on uh, food security of people. So again, there's a link between the mitigation options that states adopt and human rights. And then if you look at adaptation, there is a clear link here because whatever the source of the uh, problem is with regard to climate change, your state has an obligation to ensure that uh, the rights of people are not violated. So in other words, if there's a severe weather uh, event, the state has an obligation to put contingency plans, evacuate people, um, you know, give them temporary shelter and things like that. Um, so with regard to adaptation, there is a clear, uh, it's much easier to apply a human rights framework um, to uh, consequences of climate change, because that's more territorially grounded. I, I think about natural disasters, um, or right. for example, uh, Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans. I mean, right. I'm just wondering how much of the the conversation actually is being discussed in the terms of this is a human right that these people um, need to be protected. Right. Um, and you're right. I mean, it depends on the state in question. Certainly in the United States, there's hardly a discussion of human rights in terms of these contingency plans and things like that. Uh, certainly, um, Hurricane Katrina was not looked at as a human rights issue, um, although there were clear human rights violations there. Um, in other countries, um, like in Europe, there is... Um, better discussion of these issues in human rights terms. Um, and as I said, uh, this discussion is fairly recent. Um, so the link between human rights and climate change or in environmental issues in general um, is just beginning to sort of um, evolve. Um, so it's it's fairly recent, as I said, but um, it's happening. If you were, you know, if you talk to people on the street, some of them may know that, for example, it's uh, against their human right if they're discriminated against because right. of their religion or or their race. Right. I mean, what what would you like to see people know about their human rights in terms of uh, the climate change and the environment? 
Um, I think it's important for us to educate the people um, about the link, really, because a lot of people um, tend to think that, you know, human rights is just civil and political rights, um, whereas it's much more than that. Um, human rights encompass your, you know, um, health, um, right to food and things like that. So socioeconomic rights are very much part of the human rights agenda. Although, again, as I said, um, many countries still refer to human rights as civil and political rights. Um, so um, as a result, environmental issues are just considered as environmental issues. Uh, and I think this is part of the problem with climate change, that um, it's still considered as a purely environmental issue. Um, it's much more than that. It's a human rights is issue, it's a social issue, it's an economic issue, uh, it's a public health issue, it's a um, national security issue. So I think the complexity of the problem is not appreciated when you think of it as just an environmental issue. Um, so I think it's important to tell people about the link between these issues and also to um, adopt a more integrated approach uh, to these problems. You were recently at the big climate conference in Paris in December. Were people talking about human rights there? Oh, uh, very much so. I mean, there are, there, the human rights um, and also environmental groups have been lobbying for the inclusion of human rights in the climate change documents. And um, when I was doing research for my book that came out um, last year on the link between climate change and human rights, I was struck by the lack of a human face to climate change. Many of the documents were really stark and very technical. Um, and there was only a passing reference to human beings in these documents. And obviously, uh, given the huge uh, humanitarian catastrophe that's likely to happen with small island states uh, disappearing and a lot of um, displacement associated, uh, associated with uh, sea level rise and severe weather events, uh, it, I was really surprised to see um, such a sterile approach to climate change. Um, so after the... Um, uh, report of the um, High Commissioner for Human Rights on the link between climate change and human rights. There has been a lot of lobbying to get climate uh, human rights included in the uh, in the documents. Um, so the draft that was uh, uh, the working draft actually had a reference to human rights in the uh, operative part of the document, in addition to the preamble. Uh, but at the last minute, um, the operative part, the reference to uh, human rights in the operative part, that was uh, draft Article 2, uh, was taken out. Um, uh, we were told that uh, there was a lot of lobbying going on by um, the Norwegian government and the U.S. government to take um, human rights out. Um, so that was um, ultimately taken out in the final document, but there's still a reference to human rights in the preamble. Um, so I think that was uh, uh, a victory for those who were lobbying uh, for the inclusion, but 
you know, I mean, I refer to it as a one step forward and two steps back kind of situation. Yeah. And and this uh, deal was uh, 195 countries adopting the first ever universal legally binding global climate deal. What are your thoughts on that deal, you know, in more, more general terms? Um, I think it's a good um, step forward. Um, a lot of people were worried that something like Copenhagen would happen at uh, Paris. And uh, the, I think the international community was determined not to let that happen. Um, so overall, I think um, it's a good agreement. But of course, this is just the start. There's a lot more to be done at the national level to ensure that the commitments that the states made would be actually fulfilled and we would go beyond those commitments because those commitments are not adequate to keep the temperature rise to two, two degrees, um, let alone 1.5 that was uh, that the international community actually managed to include, which was, I think, um, a great victory for small island states in particular. Um, but again, these are voluntary commitments. I think in a way it was a clever move on the part of the international community rather than because Kyoto was obviously a failure um, and that was a top-down approach. Um, and um, I think getting states to commit to these uh, emission reductions before Paris was a really good move. And what uh, Paris did was to um, sort of put those voluntary commitments within a legal framework. Um, so I think it was a clever move to get everybody on board and also to get away from um, the problems with the, um, the uh, Kyoto Protocol where um, states were um, told to reduce um, by 5%, which was, of course, pretty minimal. Um, and also it did away with the um, Annex 1, non-Annex 1 country um, sort of uh, dichotomy, which still remains, uh, but it's not so pronounced now that states made their voluntary commitments. When, when you look forward to 2025, 2030, do you see the environment being much more discussed in terms of human rights? Do you see instruments actually in place uh, different committees, uh, treaty bodies, etc., looking into these specific connection or working on that specific question? Yeah, and it, that's um, already happening at the regional level. Um, regional bodies like uh, the European um, Court of Human Rights um, and the um, Inter-American Commission and the Court have been very active in making the link because um, the environmental law... Um, does not have the sophisticated redress mechanisms that the um, human rights bodies have. Um, so uh, victims of environmental pollution and environmental um, abuse have looked at the human rights framework um, to get redress. Um, so I think that will continue. Um, um, at the international level, um, things have not sort of evolved um, very, uh, very much in terms of you know recognizing a substantive right to a healthy environment. Um, although the appointment of an independent expert on the link by the Human Rights um, Council um, in 2012 was a really good move, and um, his mandate was extended 
um, for another three years and it was converted to a special rapporteur position. So I think things are moving slowly as um, at the international level. As you know, um, things don't move very fast. Um, so I think there are positive signs that are happening um, at the international level. And um, I think the trend at, um, at the regional level will continue. And um, the, the most developments have happened at the national level. Um, there are um, over, I think, 125 countries with some reference to um, environmental rights embodied in their constitutions. And many um, courts have interpreted existing rights, even in the absence of a specific right to a healthy environment, um, the courts have interpreted um, existing rights to include environmental rights. So uh, the Supreme Court of India has held um, in many cases that right to life include a right to live in a healthy, uh, right to be free from pollution, right to uh, an adequate standard of living, um, to be free from pollution, right to water and things like that. So um I think those um, developments will continue and the latest trend has been um, to include rights of nature in constitutions. Uh, I think uh, Bolivia is one of the countries where rights of nature have been specifically uh, incorporated in the constitution. Um, so there are lots of trends and uh, positive developments happening at every level. Sumudu Atapatu is the Director of Research Centers at the University of Wisconsin Law School in the United States, and uh, she has a new book out on human rights approaches to climate change. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. On Human Rights is broadcast from the Rao Wallenberg Institute of Human Rights and Humanitarian Law in Loon, Sweden. I'm Gabriel Stein. Thanks so much for listening today. We'll be back soon with more talking to experts around the world about the latest and most important issues on human rights and humanitarian law. <laughs>